on today's episode of the London Lyceum. It's part two of two with Dr. R.T. Mullins. Now, I know you enjoyed the first one, but you're really going to enjoy the second one because it's on the ever-so-hot topic of divine simplicity. So we talked to Dr. Mullins about what is divine simplicity, why would anyone affirm it, why would someone reject it, what are some reasons for rejecting it, and how might we respond to those. I think uh, if you want to talk to somebody who is denying divine simplicity at a high level, there's no one better uh, than Dr. Mullins. So you're going to learn a lot from this episode and why someone would reject it and how to respond to those things. We'd love for your comments below because clearly me and Brandon aren't the smartest people in the world. There's more smart people out there. So we'd love your feedback on what you think, how to respond to these objections. Uh, and we'd love to hear maybe some more objections to it. Uh, whether, wherever you land on, on the debate, we, we like to encourage thinking. And I think that's what this episode is going to do. So we encourage you to listen to the whole thing and then give us some feedback on the end. Uh, we'd have a ton of fun with it uh, to continue the conversation and maybe have him back on later if he's up for it. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum, where we try to encourage our listeners to think deeply and clearly about issues, particularly our Baptist listeners. Uh, you know, I was talking to a friend I think it was this week and just he stumbled upon our podcast, listened to the first episode, and he really resonated with the idea that Baptists don't think. So the fact that we're kind of like pushing this, uh, I think is very timely. Uh, just creating a, a place for those who are Baptists and non-Baptists. You don't have to be Baptist to listen. Um, but the reason we're doing it is just because we think Baptists don't think. So we're trying to bring in people who can help us to think through issues clearly and deeply wrestle with things, have an open space. I mean, that's part of what the name of the podcast means. Uh, Lyceum is just this uh, forum for discussion and debate. So we're really looking forward to our, our guest uh, who was on last week, who's on again on this week. Uh, we're going to talk about divine simplicity with Dr. R.T. Mullins. Uh, I'm one of your host, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other co-host, Brandon Askew. And I don't want to overflow you with me because I think who we're really interested in talking with is Ryan. So you introduced yourself on last episode. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything you, you wanted to share that you didn't last time? Uh, well, I had one thought when you're talking about Baptists not thinking. Uh, uh -oh. So well, it's, it's, it's just more of like there's this weird cultural thing going on. So I, like I said, I grew up in the independent Christian church. And so the joke in my family was always, well, we got to get out. Uh, which church has to end at 1130. So that way we can beat all the Baptists to lunch. <laughs> you know, it's like the Baptists are going to get a little bit later and they'll swarm, you know, like the Red Lobster or something. We won't find, find a table. And so I was trying to explain this joke to my wife. So like I said in the last episode, my wife is Italian. And so she didn't meet any Protestants before moving to Scotland. And so she doesn't understand what a Baptist is. And so when, like, whenever like there's a Baptist joke or something, she's just like, I, I do not get it. And I'm like, I don't know how to explain these things. I'm sorry. Most of them involve food. So. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, you're telling you, I guess, like you're always talking about food. And she's like, yeah, still, I just don't, I don't get these Baptist jokes. And I'm like, okay, sorry. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so we, uh, we wanted to talk to you today about the doctrine of divine simplicity. Mm -hmm. So this is um, kind of a hot button issue, at least in our little corner of Twitter and other places online. Yeah. But uh, so can you just start out by giving us a definition of the doctrine of divine simplicity? Yeah. So I think one way to think about it is to just look at God as this undifferentiated substance so that there's just nothing but just God. Uh, and so to kind of tease this out a little bit is the idea is here is, um, is that God does not have any parts, properties, tropes, imminent universals, whatever, you name it, God does not have it. There's just the divine substance. 
And so you'll see a lot of people when they look at divine simplicity, they'll say that like all of God's attributes are identical to each other and identical to God's existence, just in order to emphasize that there's not these properties or anything that God has. And then further, they'll say that God does not have any potential whatsoever. He's purely actual. So any potential you might get in your head, be like, get rid of that. God doesn't have that. And then they'll also say that all of God's actions are identical to each other. And thus, so there's just one divine act. And this one divine act is identical to God's existence as well, because apparently acts count as uh, parts. And, and so it's really, it's really like important to emphasize, like this is a really, really strong claim. And I think it's very important that people understand just how strong this doctrine is before they just kind of assent to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I mean, when I think about that definition, I, I mean, I don't know how long ago it was. It can't be that long that I had no idea what divine simplicity was. If you had told me that God is simple, I would think something along the lines of like intellectually simple, not right. actually this, <laughs> this doctrine. So yeah, God's the simpleton. He's just this idiot roaming around. Yeah. 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 So the people who are listening, who have like never heard of this, I think they're probably going to sit there and say, I need to like rewind it and play that again mm-hmm. so I can listen to it again. Um, I th- think uh, at least reform types are getting primarily so committed to this because of like the Westminster confession says that God is without body parts or passions. Um, but that's pretty minimal claim mm-hmm. uh, compared to what you just described. Exactly. Uh, so you described a very robust yes. um, claim. So, I mean, I've got lots of questions about divine simplicity. So I might, I'm, we might as well just start. Why, why affirm this big hefty claim about God not having like anything and no parts of any type? Um, why, why would I want to do that? Right. So I think th- there's several different kinds of reasons you might give. The most common reason for people to affirm simplicity of the day is because it's what the majority of Christians believe throughout history. So, you know, like, I mean, like, I know, like, that was my original reason for affirming the doctrine was I really like St. Augustine. He's so, he's, like, he's like so cool. He's amazing. I want to be just like him. Whatever he teaches, I have to believe. And so he teaches God is simple. I got to believe it. You know, so I just want to be cool, just like Augustine. And so I think this is like, you know, a lot of people, this is how it goes for them. You insert whatever their favorite dead guy is, be it Aquinas, be it like Turretin or, you know, whoever the flavor of the month is uh, on the on the Internet. They taught it. So therefore, I'm going to have to believe it. Now, I don't know if this is a really good line of reasoning, though, because you could say, well, like, just because somebody like a bunch of people in the past believed it, like, so what? So like, think of it this way. Like, imagine your mom says, well, look, if St. Augustine jumped off a bridge, would you do it? And you're probably gonna be like, well, maybe because, you know, Gus was really cool. But like, um, so I, there's something kind of weird going on here because the most Christians today, they do not believe everything that the Christian uh, tradition held. So if you want to start just using the line of reasoning, well, I'm going to believe whatever the vast majority of Christians believed in the past, you're going to find yourself in disagreement with the Christian tradition really quick. So let's just stick with like, you know, uh, Baptists in America. Most of them, when they read the Song of Solomon, they are not going to think that the Song of Solomon is about Christ's love for the church, you know? So the, the the passage you always read when you're like a little kid, it says, you know, your breasts are like two shy deer, you know, because uh, that's always like a fun one because all the other really sexually explicit uh, metaphors in there, like you don't, you don't understand when you're 10. So you don't like get like, oh, oh my God, I didn't see that one, you know, uh, but the breast one, like that sticks out to you. Well, I don't care what anybody says. There's no way 
that that's that verse is literally or metaphorically about Jesus's love for the church. Like a statement about uh, your breasts look like two shy deer. That is just not about like Christ's love. For the church. <laughs> I don't care what anybody says. And, and I'm thinking like probably a lot of like Baptists will go. Yeah, obviously. Um, but if you really want to go with, well, what everybody and their mother and the in church tradition believed, I have to believe, well, then you're going to have to say it somehow in some weird sort of sense, that's about Christ's love for the church. So nobody applies this consistently. And I think this is like a, just a great example of this. So if that's your reasoning for doing it um, for simplicity, I don't think it's a good reason. Mm-hmm. I think you need a better reason. So here's one kind of like, here's a just kind of like a quick run through some of the kind of reasons that like actual reasons that maybe you'd want to affirm it. So you might say something like this. Um, so some people will say like simplicity is the only way to capture the claim that God is, has aseity or God's like self-existence. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow, I guess, you know, if God's say, then you're going to get the claim that all of God's attributes are identical to each other. And you might like uh, make other claims like, you know, if God's simple, then that's the only way he could be the creator of the universe. And you, you maybe can even build a cosmological argument around around it. Uh, other moves people make, they'll say, like, there's a lot of different theological puzzles that I have, like the Euthyphro dilemma, or, um, you know, I've got the Trinity. So I've got three persons, somehow one God. What's going on there? You'd be like, ah, divine simplicity. That'll answer everything. So those are kind of like the like more the sort of actual reasons, I think, that someone, if you want to affirm divine simplicity, you should appeal to reasons like that, not just because a bunch of dead people said so. Uh, look at the reasons that those dead people had for affirming mm-hmm. doctrine. That's what I think is more important. And those are the so, kind of reasons you see. Yeah. So I think the aseity one is, and I guess if if you're into perfect being theology, which I, I pretty much am, though, I think for whatever reason, a lot of like confessional reform types have problems with it. Oh, that's weird. I know. Cause it's right there in the reform tradition, but yeah, yeah whatever. Um, so a CD seems for me, at least from my vantage point seems to imply or entail at least some version of divine simplicity. So I guess the question is twofold is number one, does a CD actually entail simplicity? And number two, can I have a less metaphysically thick definition of simplicity and still have divine simplicity? Mm-hmm. Right. So I'll answer the the second one first. Uh, so can you have some other definition of divine simplicity? No, no, not at all. Uh, James Dozel is really clear on this, and I think he's absolutely right. The, the claim of simplicity is like God has no properties, no potential. You don't have any of these distinctions. You don't have any forms. You don't have any of this, any of this, any of this. And then you want to go, well, God's simple, but he's got like some properties and he's got some potential. And you're like, no, you've already given it up. It's the same thing with like uh, people wanting to say, can I have God have, you know, be timeless, but like, you know, maybe he's got a little bit of succession and you're like, no, mm-hmm. timelessness means no succession. And so the same thing with simplicity. If you want God to have properties and be like, no, simplicity says no properties. You're like, well, can God have like some distinctions? Some no distinctions. Well, can he have like some potential? No potential. I said no potential. So anybody who wants to say, I've got a, like a weak doctrine of simplicity, which I see all the time, they've just abandoned the doctrine. That's all That's all it is. They've just abandoned it. That's uh, helpful. Yeah. I like that. Mm-hmm. So I guess then the question is, does a CD or I think what James Dolezal says something, calls it God's absoluteness and infinite fullness. Um, I don't, exactly yeah, I don't know means. what, right. That's the, that's the problem is I don't know what absolute fullness means. So when you read through Dozel's book, uh, All That Is in God, he never once gives a definition of absolute fullness. 
So I don't know what the argument's supposed to be from there because I don't have a definition. As far as I can tell, absolute fullness just means the doctrine of divine simplicity. And I think like chapter four of All That Isn't God, I think that's actually what's going on is he's arguing that, well, if you can't affirm simplicity, then you can't affirm absolute fullness, but absolute fullness just is simplicity. So, you know, if you don't affirm simplicity, you don't affirm simplicity. And I'm like, well, that, well, that's not that's not an interesting argument. Uh, of course, I don't affirm simplicity. And because I don't affirm it, I can't affirm it. But I don't know. Uh, so absolute fullness, just put that aside because he never gives us a definition. So I don't know what the argument's supposed to be there. So at Osseity, though, I can tell you what that is. So Osseity is this. A being exists, say if and only if its existence is not dependent upon nor derived from something else. And, and that's it. So if God's existence is somehow dependent upon something else, not I'll say. If he's somehow derived you know, from something else, not I'll say. Now, I don't know how to get from there to simplicity okay. unless you start building in a bunch of other metaphysical claims into the doctrine of Osseity. So I think this is what's going on. Most debates about the doctrine of God, like between competing models of God, are actually debates about competing metaphysical theories. So like Keith Ward is really clear on this. Keith Ward says, debates about model of God have nothing to do with the Bible. They're all about competing metaphysical claims. And so I think in order to get anything up and running from aseity to simplicity, you have to build in a whole bunch of different Thomistic uh, doctrines about uh, parts and wholes, about what you think properties are and everything. And the thing is, none of that has anything to do with aseity. That's just extra metaphysical baggage, which you might be really attracted to, or you might not. If you're like me, you're just going to go, I just think this is crazy. I don't need any of that metaphysics. So I can give you aseity and just give you a bunch of different metaphysical stories, none of which would get you to divine simplicity. So I think you have to build in a bunch of extra uh, philosophical assumptions in order to get from aseity to simplicity. That's interesting. I mean, I was I just finished Steve Doobie's uh, new book, God and Himself. Mm. Um, and I think him and Dolzel are pretty much, let's just repeat Thomistic metaphysics yeah. um, and scholasticism, which for the most part, I mean, at least right now, I'm cool with that. So there's a lot of stuff that's really great. I mean, the scholastics, they're bright. So it's not like I don't I just want to be like, oh, they're dumb, you know, like get rid of them. No, like there's really good stuff going on there. Yeah. Yeah. But even I mean, for the most part, I think I'm pretty up on scholasticism. You know, I I I've read it, Ed Faser and all these other people. But even even still, I'm kind of like, man, act and potency, confusing. Uh, <laughs> weird sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that said, um, so it seems you said I can have a city without having these different metaphysical commitments. So why don't you think a city leads to simplicity then? Right. So here's one of the moves you have to make in order to get to uh, from Osseity to simplicity. And this is just one of many you have to do. So this isn't going to give you the full story. You've got to kind of have this uh, assumption that all sorts of things count as parts. Existence counts as a part. All the different properties or imminent universals or forms or whatever all count as parts. And, and then from there, you kind of also have to assume that if God has those things, that he needs something outside of himself to compose himself. Uh, and so there's a bunch of steps along the way that I want to go no and no. So those are just two, but you need a few more uh, than just those. But that's plenty for us to talk about. So the first one is like... I guess I could take uh, properties to be parts, but I don't know why I should. I just find that silly. 
So when Augustine and tons of other people, when they talk about the simplicity of the soul, they say the soul is simple. It doesn't have parts. It has properties. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a bunch of faculties, got powers, but those aren't literally parts. Maybe they're metaphorically parts, but metaphorical parts, that's not a problem, but they're not literally parts. And I'm happy with that. Uh, so do I want to say God has different properties? Yeah. Do those count as parts? Why should I think they count as parts? Um, why should I think existence counts as a part? That just seems weird. Uh, here's a further one though. So a lot of people, like when they would look at phaser and whatnot, they're like, oh, right. Thomism says X, Y, and Z. Well, here's the thing. Thomists disagree on everything. My goodness, do they disagree mm -hmm. on everything. There's a bunch of different Thomist philosophers who will tell you that form and matter, those are not literally parts. The, the composition of form and matter, that's a metaphorical composition. Uh, so if it's not really literally parts, then if I say God has some forms, well, then I'm not really talking about literal parts. So what's, what's, what's the problem here? Um, how am I going to get from aseity to simplicity if these things don't actually count as parts? Uh, so, so like I said, it's a lot of philosophical baggage, a lot of assumptions you have to make that are contentious even amongst Thomists themselves and amongst the classical tradition itself. That's interesting. And mm -hmm. as I'm thinking about it, before I forget, I know you have, I guess, a review article of James Dolezal's All That Is In God yeah. on uh, Journal of Biblical and Theological Studies. I should remember the exact order if it's biblical or theological first because I'm, the I'm, I'm on the editorial board. Um, I think that's right. Yeah. Google it and yeah. you'll find it. Yeah. Because uh, I know they're, I guess, open access or something mm -hmm. of the sort. They just post it online. So, yeah. Uh, did James ever respond to any of those critiques that you had put up there? No, I was hoping that he would when um, I had this debate on Theopolis, the, the website Theopolis, this past summer. Mm -hmm. And originally, James was going to, he agreed to um, to participate in it. But he had to drop out at the last minute. I don't know why. He just said he was he was too busy. He couldn't do it, uh, which is fair enough because like it was summertime and you know probably going on holiday and so have much better things to do than uh, you know be on like some online debate. Uh, so so yeah. So I don't I don't know. Um, he hasn't he has responded yet. Uh, maybe he's working on something. But then he also got involved in a bunch of other projects like that uh, divine impassibility four views book. Yeah, he was he was involved with mm -hmm. that. So probably just has other stuff going on. Fair. So, so Brandon, uh, you I'll, go ahead. I'll, I'm going to yeah. stop hogging because I've got all these questions that I want to ask. I'll, I'll be I'll be the Baptist and and bring things back to the Bible here. Thank so, you. Um, <laughs> so, would you say that? And it's a very simple question. Mm -hmm. Would you say that Scripture teaches the doctrine of divine simplicity? Because last episode, when we were talking about God and time and timelessness, you know, you said basically, if you're going to the Bible to find timelessness for God, you're you're not going to find it. So. Would is your answer the same for simplicity? Uh, actually, I want to say something stronger. Uh, I want to say it directly contradicts what's going on in Scripture. Uh, I, I could actually say the same thing about um, timelessness and immutability, but uh, I didn't in the last episode. I was being more charitable. I'm not going to be charitable now. <laughs> uh, and I'm not the only one who says this, right? So, uh, so you'll have people like Walter Brueggemann, uh, who's you know he's not that big of a deal in Old Testament scholarship, uh, you know, and other like, you know, like, like small time people like, uh, uh, like Moberly, Walter Moberly and Richard Bauckham and Terrence Freedom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of these really big names in, uh, old, in like biblical scholarship, they're going to say classical theism is in direct tension with the biblical witness. And here's why they would think that. 
So when you look at the different passages in the scripture, you see this big emphasis on God's accidental properties. So we like to talk about God's essential properties because we're theologians, right? So we want to talk about omnipotence. We want to talk about omniscience. We want to give you all the big O's, right? Well, what does the Bible really care more about? This is the God of Jacob. This is the God of Abraham. This is the God of Isaac. This is the one who was and is and is to come. This is the God of Jesus. Like, so it's all these different accidental properties that the scripture really focuses on a lot more than the essential properties of God, which as a systematic theologian, I find annoying because I'm like, tell me the good stuff. Tell me the, like, you know, the essential properties. But the scripture is much more interested in the accidental properties. Simplicity says God has no accidental properties whatsoever. When I say God is creator, redeemer, Lord, whatever, I'm not saying something about God. I'm saying something about myself. This is straight out of the mouth of Augustine. This is straight out of the mouth of Boethius, Peter Lombard, Aquinas, you name it. This is what their claim is. That is in direct contradiction with what the Bible has to say. To make even matters more worse, a major theme in the Old Testament is divine suffering and divine change, that God is being influenced by what is happening. He's upset by your sins. You know, the Psalms say that God has indignation every single day. God is being affected he's, he's by the universe itself, by what's going on in creation, that is exactly the opposite of what the classical doctrine says. Uh, you cannot have it on simplicity and impassibility and timelessness and immutability. You can't get that. So I think the biblical evidence is just is very much in the opposite direction. So, yeah. So if someone wants to affirm simplicity, they have to come up with quite a bit of explanation for a lot of things going on. So yes, um, I'm trying to think. I, I wrote uh, my THM thesis on defending classical theism primarily just from a a in hermeneutical standpoint. Right. So yeah, it yeah. seems like Bruce Ware and Scott Oliphant, some guys who are more kind of like in my tribe, um, they have denied certain classical theistic doctrines, not by engaging metaphysically with them primarily, right. but primarily just saying, well, the Bible says this in, in verse 1, 2, therefore, mm -hmm. that claim is false. Yeah. So it seems like the classical theist does have some leeway to say, well, if the Bible does explicitly teach this doctrine, and this doctrine is in direct contradiction with this other text, either I have to say, give up, I guess, some doctrine of infallibility with Scripture, or say, I'm okay with reinterpreting some texts that on its face seem different. Right. And so the, the burden is on the classical theist to do this. And there's lots of people in the tradition who've tried to do this. I mean, John of Damascus gives you a huge list of what all these different passages mean metaphorically when we talk about God having body parts, for instance. Mm -hmm. He's like, God's feet mean this. God's eyes mean this. He gives you a whole list. And you're like, okay, cool. That's, that's, what, that's what I want. Um, but the claim with God has body parts, here's something that people like Bruce Ware will point out. When I look at God having body parts, there are other passages that say that God is spirit. Uh, so I've got some kind of tension in the text of either God is physical or he's not. Uh, that's in the biblical witness itself. And so that biblically, then I'm, if I really want to say that scripture is like infallible or inerrant, whatever tradition you want to come out of, uh, saying whichever way you want to land on that debate, you're going to want to say, well, then I have reason from within the text itself to interpret one set of these passages as being either metaphorical or anthropomorphic or something. When it comes to timelessness, immutability, simplicity, impassibility, these sorts of things, there is nothing in the text there where there is any sort of tension. There's nothing in the text that says all of God's attributes are identical to each other. There's nothing there. 
So when I see all these different passages that talk about God having all these different attributes, there's nothing there that says, oh, actually, hang on, they're all, they're all identical to each other. There's nothing in the text that suggests God does not have accidental properties. Instead, it just, just assumes he's got tons of these. There's nothing in the text that says, thus saith the Lord, you know, all my actions are identical to each other and identical to my existence. That's just not there. So there's nothing in the biblical text itself to kind of warrant taking these passages as metaphorical or anthropomorphic or anything like that. There's nothing biblical. So if you're wanting to just go with just biblical arguments alone, there's nothing there in the text to give you that. You need some sort of justification to, to do that. And it's not there. Yeah, I guess for me anyway, I think the accidental properties is definitely the most challenging Mm-hmm. One, like you mentioned, I guess, Lord and creator, um, everybody is going to affirm that those are rightly predicated of God. It seems like they should. Yeah. Except when uh, they're being consistent does, and they say don't. <laughs> it does seem difficult on simplicity to say that those can be added if he doesn't have anything accidental. So creator seems to be something that he shouldn't have been at some point mm-hmm. and then is later. Right. Um, so Dolzel, I think in his book, defends God as eternal creator. And I think uh, Paul Helm does that in his. Uh, Paul Helm does it too. God yeah. too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is there a reason that I, sh- we should say that's a bad argument or is that a legitimate way to get around it? You just have to be willing to eat the cost of the idea that God is eternally these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've actually got a, a paper I'm working on that deals a bit with this issue. Um, so I can understand how Paul Helm can say it. So Paul Helm says uh, that eternalism is the true story of time. So eternalist ontology of time means all moments of time, past, present, future, they all exist. And they're all co-eternal with God. And Paul Helm's really clear about this. He says, there is no state of affairs where God exists without the universe. This, the whole block of time is co-eternal with God. And so you can say, well, right. So he's eternally the creator in the sense that like, he's just eternally like there with all this stuff. If you want to affirm something more like what Augustine affirms or what like Aquinas affirms, then you're going to say, well, there's this state of affairs where God exists without the universe. And so if I say he's eternally the creator, I don't know what you're saying because the universe doesn't co-eternally exist with God. And there's a bunch of pagan philosophers who, when they saw the doctrine of creation ex nihilo being developed by Christians, they're like, what are you guys talking about? If the universe is like coming into existence out of nothing, then God's going to be changing. Uh, And so you can't have God being eternally the creator. I'll tell you how I make God eternally the creator. God and creation are co-eternal. They've always existed. So that's how, so Paul Helm's going to just be like, yep, that's right. It's fine. Go for it. I don't know if Dozel's going to want to say that, uh, but yeah. Dozel hasn't told me what ontology time he's working with. So I don't know. So, you know, man, that's interesting. I don't remember Helm exactly, totally. So now I'm just thinking back to it. And it seems like if you take that eternalist view of time, how does he affirm creation ex nihilo? I don't think you can, um, because so much of the Christian tradition, they are really clear about what creation ex nihilo means. It means it's a free act of God. It means that there was nothing and then there was something. Whereas if you've got this eternal block, there's a cheeky sort of way in which I can say it has a beginning because it has an earliest moment in the same way that like when I look at it, like a yardstick or a ruler, I can say it's got ends, but... I just want to say that's not, that's just not what the classical understanding of creation out of nothing means. Creation out of nothing was very clearly, you've got God and nothing else, and then there's this stuff. Uh, and so I just don't think that this idea of on eternalist ontology, there's a first moment, that's just not a real beginning uh, in the deeper sense that, that the classical tradition wanted to affirm. 
So maybe you can just say, well, fine, the classical tradition was just wrong on this thing. They got the God part right, but they got the creation part wrong. You could do that. Um, but you're going to have to fudge something. And so that's, yeah. that's, that's what I think. Yeah, you got to do. You got to fudge something. So either like re- revise your doctrine of God, revise your doctrine of creation. That's interesting. So maybe we can transition to one of your specific arguments mm-hmm. against simplicity. Um, earlier this afternoon, I was reading your article, uh, Simply Impossible, mm-hmm. in the Journal of Reformed Theology. So can you, uh, ex- and in that article, you you talk about this um, modal collapse argument. Can you describe that for us? Yeah. So the modal collapse, that when I was working on that paper that you're talking about, I didn't have the modal collapse very clear in my head. I was focusing more on this freedom argument, which we can talk about in a minute. Um, but the modal collapse one, for some reason, that's the one everyone cares about. So, <laughs> ah, you know, which, which, whatever, it's fine. Uh, so here's the idea. So I, I want to have a modal collapse. Um, I've got these modal categories that I want to have, which is like necessity, contingency. These are different categories I want to have in my modality. I have a collapse when all of those things get collapsed into one category. Either everything gets collapsed, collapsed into contingency or everything gets collapsed into necessity. And so my modal collapse argument against simplicity is saying, Simplicity entails that everything is necessary. Everything about God is necessary. Everything about you and me and like the way time goes, all absolutely necessary. So here's how you do it. So what I do is I take standard Christian claims about God and standard uh, claims about divine simplicity. And I say together, combined together, you get a modal collapse. So here's the standard Christian theology that you need. Uh, so that's the first half of it. And the second half is the simplicity stuff. So the first half is uh, standard Christian claims, which are just things like, you know, God performs a bunch of different actions. So God's, uh, one of the d- divine actions is he's, he says this specific universe. I want this specific universe to exist. Of all the possible universes I could create, I want this one. And, you know, I want, and I'm going to decree that this particular timeline takes place. And these are all intrinsic actions of God. And this is something that Augustine and Aquinas and loads of others want to say that these are all intrinsic actions of God, saying this universe, saying this timeline, those are intrinsic actions to God. Now, here's the problem. So simplicity says that all of God's intrinsic actions are identical to each other and identical to God's existence. So anything that is identical to God's existence, it's going to have the same modal status as God's existence. Otherwise, they're not really identical. And so then you have to ask, well, what is God's like modal status of God's existence? Well, the answer is absolute necessity. So anything identical to God's existence is going to have to also have the modal status of absolute necessity. Otherwise, they are not identical. So when you look at God's different actions, like creating this specific universe, creating this specific timeline, well, they're identical to God's existence. So what modal status are they going to have? Absolute necessity. So could God have created a different universe? No, because this universe exists of absolute necessity because that's the one that God selected. Hmm. Why this particular timeline? Why did God predestine things to go this way? Well, because it's identical to his existence. So it's going to have to be absolutely necessary. And so what you get then is that this is the only possible world that could exist. This is the only possible way things could be. And that's really bad because most of us want to say there's some contingency in the world. Things didn't have to be exactly this way. God could have done something else. But if it's identical to his existence, it can't be because then you're basically saying, well, God could have existed otherwise. And that's just not, and that's just not the way it is. That's not how it works. And so I guess, so this goes back and hits on the earlier prior commitment that the defender of divine simplicity has that an act equals a part, right? Cause mm-hmm. that's what makes the doctrine so strong. So have, 
has if if the the defender of simplicity did not which i guess they in which case they would just be abandoning abandoning simplicity altogether because you said there's no stronger or weaker form but that's what traps them here right is because you are equating an act with a part yeah correct yeah that's right so uh eunomius who is a fourth century heretic um but he had really good arguments uh so he he had this problem he saw the problem he just noticed it right away he's like oh gosh you know uh if if uh, you know god's actions are identical to himself then we get this necessarily existent universe because if god acts to bring about a universe he's he's all powerful it's gonna happen like it's not gonna fail to happen well crap what do i do uh if i you know i've got this eternal like uh, universe he's just like well then i'll make god's acts not identical to god and so he just kind of like fudges on the doctrine of simplicity there whereas he wants to say like all these things are identical to god except for this one thing uh and so then you kind of see this sort of tradition in the eastern uh church where they kind of start going god's actions are identical to each other but not always because sometimes there's these energies and like you know start doing all sorts of weird stuff but they yeah they someone like that like uh, they'll say ah here we go this is the problem make god's act not identical to his existence Hmm. yeah and uh, you know you're talking about this modal collapse where everything i guess becomes necessary or contingent Mm -hmm. it seems like i think at least in my brain if you take i think if you take the reformed understanding of god and the world it seems like that necessarily means everything is going to be necessary yes so i think that the classic funny response is doesn't that mean that when i sing that you know praise god that he saved a wretch like me it's it's not just that he chose to do it it's that he praise god who had to save a wretch like me yeah yeah Uh, and i think that's the force of that objection it seems to me that it's making things like grace and mercy necessary, mm-hmm. which I think most people naturally want to say that that's not a necessary thing. Exactly. So my question, I guess, I mean, people who affirm simplicity do say that God has one act, right? One mm-hmm. eternal timeless act. Yep. So isn't it possible to say that it was contingent prior to that act? Once that act is timelessly eternally put in motion i know i'm using time language to describe something that's not supposed to be in time yeah but logically can i can i do that to say it was contingent prior to that even though there's no prior Uh, i think i understand what you're getting at so what you have to introduce you you have to stop being a thomist and start being a scotist uh which i'm always happy with because i'm in scotland and you know that's where john is from Um, And also, I just love Scotus. He's great. So Scotus creates this idea. He calls them uh, logical moments or instance of nature. Mm. Uh, And so they're really weird. Um, Here's the idea is I can give you these things that have the exact same structure as temporal moments. But I say they all exist in the same either temporal moment or the same timeless moment. Because Scotus, he's like, you know, these are these logical moments are embedded in a single timeless moment or a single temporal moment. Uh, and it's supposed to help him solve all sorts of problems, one of which is related to how can God be free and the universe contingent if he's like simple, timeless, immutable, blah, blah, blah. So these logical moments have the exact same structure as temporal moments in the sense that there's a before and after relation between the logical moments. And what happens at one moment is not what's happening at the next moment. And so I think that's kind of what you're getting at here is like there's this sense in which I could say, well, there's this logical moment at which God isn't doing anything. And then at the next logical moment, God's doing stuff. Yep. Now, both of those logical moments exist within the single timeless moment. 
Uh, and so that's kind of what you need. Uh, you actually need this in order to develop all the reformed doctrines of predestination and the order of the decrees and all this kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, so this is all built on the back of SCOTUS. And for a while I thought like, hey, that's pretty cool. Uh, you got these crazy logical moments and you can do some fun stuff with them. Here's the problem. If, there, if God's actions are really identical to God's existence, you can't sneak in a logical moment in there. Uh, I can start talking about logical priorities uh, or something of the sort, but no, because if they're really identical, you can't sneak it in. Uh, but this is the thing. When you're thinking about Scotus, though, he says he's working with simplicity. He says he gives you this real identity, but then he introduces all these distinctions uh, because that's what Scotus loves to do. Um, so if you get the real doctrine of simplicity without all the distinctions, you're not going to be able to do it. If you've got Scotus is really cheeky, clever, I've got simplicity, but not really, but just enough to convince you I do, um, then you can get these logical moments in. Okay. So yeah. I remember, I think on Twitter, you said something about you had no idea what Log, the dif distinction between logical and temporal moments really meant. Right. Uh, so I asked uh, Greg Welty mm -hmm. what he thought about the distinction. And this is what he told me. Mm -hmm. So he said, think of it this way. When Socrates drinks the hemlock and dies, his wife, Zan Zantippe, I don't even know how to say I don't know how to say her name either, yeah. Um, she becomes a widow. Mm -hmm. Now, there is no temporal prior priority of Socrates dying before she is widowed, for the events are simultaneous. Mm -hmm. However, there is logical priority since it is Socrates dying, which explains her being widowed. Mm -hmm. It is certainly not her being widowed, which explains his dying. It is the drinking of hemlock, which does that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so I think what you can do in to talk about logical priority here. So Alan Rhoda points out that you can have logical priority if things are compatible um if, if it's compatible for them to be simultaneous so i could say two plus two equals four uh you know two plus three equals five all these things i could say i could talk about logical priorities in terms of like you know this mathematical equation but it's but those are all compatible with being simultaneously true um whereas if i talk about not performing an action and performing an action those things are not simultaneously compatible so I don't think you can use the logical priority distinction here. And that's exactly what's going on in the case of the logical moments of the life of God in all the Scotus doctrines and all the Reformed doctrines, all the Molinist doctrines, is they'll say, there's God. He doesn't know what's going to happen in the future because he hasn't determined it. At the next logical moment, he does determine it. And the logical moment after that, therefore, he has all his foreknowledge. So you've got incompatible states of affairs going on in these logical moments. And that's what Scotus wants, because he's like, that's, that's, I need to explain how there can be these things. Uh, whereas the case of Socrates and his wife, those are compatible with happening simultaneously. Uh, whereas the case of divine action and divine providence and all that, that's not compatible with happening simultaneously. To really push this point a little bit harder, um, there's a bunch of different debates in the Reformed tradition where people get called out on, you gave me the wrong order of decrees. You gave me the wrong order of the logical moments. Mm -hmm. And here's the standard move to get out of, uh, out of this complaint. So uh, there's this guy named uh, Moses uh, Amarat. He's a French Calvinist, and he gets accused of being an Arminian because he gave the wrong order of the decrees. And when nobody wants to be a dirty Arminian, so, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> uh, and so Moses Amarat, he's like, he's like it, look, it's just like, it's just a story we tell ourselves. You know, these logical moments, like all of the actions are just identical to each other. So you can't really, you know, really tell this. It's just a useful fiction, basically, is what it comes down to. And you can find this in Lewis Burkhoff. He does the same thing where he'll give you all these logical moments, and then he'll go... But because God's acts are all identical to each other, there's really no sense in that. We just have to tell ourselves 
there's these logical moments in order to make sense of it. But in reality, there's just the one simple act. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think you can tell the story if you want, but if you get pushed on it, and a bunch of people historically have, they start saying it's just a fiction. It's just a useful fiction. So, ooh, yeah, I don't. Um, I guess you could do it, but if it's just a fiction, then I'm like, okay, well, I can tell a bunch of fake stories too. Like, uh, <laughs> what are we doing? I'm just doing fake news because that's fun. But is that theology? <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, I think you know, I've got to think about that more. Mm-hmm, sure, because it's oh, a weird I'm thing. Totally yeah. evading. I'm totally evading at this point. That's um, fine. This one. Switching to gears, I think you already answered this, but I just wanted to ask it because we do like to do confessional stuff on this podcast. Yeah. Um, is it possible, and I think you're going to say no, to affirm doctrinal statements like Westminster or even the 39 Articles or maybe this you know, more modern thing, the Baptist faith and message, and deny divine simplicity? Actually, I don't think, I, I'm surprised you to say, uh, yeah, you can. Um, I, so I was looking through all the different uh, ecumenical creeds because uh, I've been I asked this a lot. I guess I asked this question a lot about the ecumenical creeds. I hadn't been asked this question before about Westminster or Baptist Faith and Message or Thirty Nine Articles. So I had to look through them uh, to go like, what do they say? Because like most statements on the doctrine of God in most confessions are really short and really vague. Uh, it's almost like the doctrine of God is like the least important thing in our confessions. <laughs> uh, and some- yeah, I don't even think the Baptist Faith and Message mentions. Uh, simplicity. And no, it doesn't at all. Yeah, that's what surprised me. I was looking through. I was like, there's nothing there. There's no statement there. Uh, so yeah, so if you're Baptist, you know, go for it. Uh, deny it all you want. And if somebody gives you grief, be like, tell me where it is in the Baptist faith and commit, you know, like it's not there. But of course, like, you know, like uh, since we're all American here, we can talk about what's going on in American Christian universities. There's all these unspoken rules. Um, mm-hmm. So there might be like simplicity might someday become like this unspoken confessional rule. But you won't know that you violated it until someone gets upset. Um, so, and then you can be like, "It's not there in the thing," and be like, "It doesn't matter," you know. Uh, so, because we've seen that happen a million times in recent history. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it's not there. Um, it's not in the thirty-nine articles. Uh, the ecumenical creeds. I think it's safe to say the church fathers are assuming simplicity when they're developing the creeds, but it's not stated explicitly in the creeds. Uh, and so, if you want, you can say, "Look." It's not there. It's not explicitly stated. I don't need to affirm it. And I've seen classical theists do this with ecumenical creeds, and I've seen non-classical theists do this with ecumenical creeds. I don't know if it's intellectually honest, um, but I'm not certain theology is always that interested in being intellectually honest uh, because people are always kind of making those moves of like, it's not there, so I don't have to affirm it. Um, yeah, I yeah. guess that is, a, I mean, that's a whole nother like massive discussion, I guess, is determining if I want to be committed to certain confessions or creeds, do I have to just affirm what's there? Or do I have to also affirm what's implicitly there that I know that these uh, authors are thinking through and using? And that's where where the, the Westminster Confession is different. So the Westminster Confession gives you the statement, God is without parts. Yeah. And you're like, well, so what? Um, because absent the incarnation, I don't know any doctrine of God really that says God has parts. They just disagree with what counts as parts. So divine simplicity wants to say like everything's a part. Uh, and every other model of God wants to go, that's nuts. Uh, not everything counts as a part. Actions are not parts. Existence is not a part. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Um, so what you could say with the with the Westminster Confession is to go, I mean, I know it says no parts, but I don't think God has parts. 
Um, mm -hmm. You know, and if they want you to say simplicity, then you could say, oh, well, tell me where in the Westminster Confession it explicitly lays out its myriological uh, position. Tell me about its, its metaphysical understanding of parts and wholes, because it's not there. So I guess I do want to wrap this up a little bit. Uh, so from your perspective, who's writing the best defenses of simplicity and who's writing the best critiques of simplicity besides yourself? Besides myself. Oh gosh. Um, there's so, this is the thing is so many people uh, have come down hard uh, against simplicity. And I think a lot of the arguments are really good. Um, I don't always like all of Planiga's arguments, Alvin Planiga's arguments against simplicity, because I think he gets some stuff wrong, but he's still got some really good criticisms that I don't think have been answered. Christopher Hughes has some really serious criticisms that nobody's answered. Uh, Tom Morris. I mean, it's, it's, the list goes on and on. Um, in terms of people actually defending it, that I think I can understand what they're saying, and they're not just playing the mystery card all the time. Uh, Catherine Rogers is one of the few that I think is actually doing the work here. She'll, she'll just say, I know it's super weird to say that God is in action. It's crazy, but that's what the doctrine says. So there we go. Uh, she'll just bite the bullet on that. Uh, and she doesn't want to make the same sort of moves that others do because others want to like a, a Augustine and Aquinas and all these others, they want to say, God's not really related to the universe. And, and Catherine Rogers, she just goes, that's nuts. There's no way you can make sense of that and say that God is omnipresent, that God's providentially uh, uh, you know, involved with the universe. You cannot say that God's not really related to the universe. So she's like, I'm going to have to give you a different story of creation. I'm going to have to give you this different like uh, metaphysical story in order to try to like, preserve these classical attributes. And I, I think that's, I just admire that. I'm just willing to go, these are exactly where the problems are. And so I'm going to have to do something to try, to try to deal with the issue. That's good. Brandon, do you yeah. have any, any closing questions or no, I don't. Me. And my, my son is about to bust through the door here. Fair so, enough. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I, I've, this has given me a lot to chew on and think about, and I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. It's been very informative. Yeah. And I'm sure there's people who are listening who are smarter than us who want to comment. So you can comment away as you want. Maybe. Um, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how I feel. <laughs> um, I, I have really enjoyed learning from you on, on both of these. Uh, it's given me a lot to chew on. Now I need to go read Catherine Rogers again and find that find out where she's making those arguments so I can chew on them myself. Um, Cause I, I do have, I, I've got this own little project that I'm wanting to do on determining what are the metaphysics of relations. Mm -hmm. So once we've got our categories here, what are we allowed to do with simplicity and Trinity? Cause we didn't even cover that. I guess right. the problem with the Trinity. Yeah. Um, how, how do we affirm God as triune if we affirm a very strong divine simplicity? Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess that's a little project that I'm working on on the side. So nice, now nice. I need to go find Catherine Rogers again. Mm -hmm. So thanks again for taking the time. Um, I do want to encourage all our listeners to check out your podcast, uh, The Reluctant Theologian, as well as uh, all of the other work. You, I think you've got your work on your website and you're on Phil People and other things too, I think. Yep. So just Google and you'll, you'll find them. Um, but you've also got a book. The End of the Timeless God. Yep, that's already out. Uh, my next book, God and Emotions, will be out this year. Oh, then, good. Uh, so that's finally going to be out. Uh, and then I've got a third book that's halfway written uh, where I look at divine temporality, just what is what is divine temporality. Excellent. Yeah. So I, I obviously encourage all our listeners to check out these books, whether you agree with them or not. Uh, you're going to learn and be challenged to think through your issues clearly because I think one thing you do well is you lay out the arguments uh, and explain, here's what people are actually affirming. 
here's what the problems with that. So if you want to affirm these things, you have to be aware of the problems and actually interact with those specific problems. Yep. But um, thanks for taking the time to, to chat with us. Yeah. We had a ton of fun. Um, yeah, thank you. I know I personally, you're probably one of the only podcasts I actually listen to besides my, my own. So uh, shout out there. Thank but, you. Uh, yeah. yeah. So thanks. And uh, for all our listeners, you've been listening to the only Analytic Baptist confessional podcast that exists. Uh, and we hope you tune in next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.